Welcome back to another week here on MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. I'm Ryan Drury. I'll be joined as always by Steve Sabrin and Chris Clark. We'll be joined this week by our friend Eric Thomas, ET, back on the show from Raceline Radio to talk about the Great American Race, the Daytona 500, crazy crashes, crazy delays, and of course, the 20-year anniversary of losing Dale Earnhardt. We'll also welcome on our friend Rob Longley from the Toronto Sun, Blue Jays beat reporter, to talk about the Jays, questions about their rotation, and of course, lots of excitement around their revamped hitting lineup and as as always, we will finish off chatting with our wagering expert heading into the weekend, Scotty's Tournament of Hearts. Chris Abbott will join us at the end. You're listening to and watching MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. I am Ryan Drury, alongside Steve Sabrin and Clarky. We're very pleased to be joined by one of our favorites from the racing world, Eric Thomas of Raceline Radio. ET, how you doing, buddy? Doing good. Good to be on with you guys. Uh, brand new season just getting underway uh, with NASCAR, and we've got some great news today. Hope you don't mind me doing this, but Subaru Canada, who's been with us all 29 of our 29 years on the air, re-upping for the 2021 season along with general tires so we're wired in uh, cash wise they're not going to turn the lights off and the heat off so uh, away we go with season 29 of, uh, of race line uh, syndicated on 12 stations right across the country so we're we're in a good place right now well congratulations et and as it should be it's a great show with a great following and we really appreciate you lending us some of your time let's talk nascar here i mean the great american race it had a little bit of everything this year long delays crazy <laughs> crashes a first time winner and i mean at the end of it it all culminated in a pretty entertaining great american race michael mcdowell winning it but yep. 18 of 40 cars don't finish the race i mean yeah. this one had a little bit of everything et yeah, the infamous big one at Daytona, and when you're running throttle bodies, and you're you know you you've got these things throttled down because they don't want them going 200 miles an hour and getting up into the fence or having forbidden into the grandstands, even though the crowd was was limited. Yeah, it was uh, it was the crazy one. Sometimes you have to wait till late in the race for the big one that collects a lot of cars. This was only 14 laps old when the big one hit. I think 16 cars got involved. Seven of them parked permanently. And then right after that, the skies opened up for a five-hour and 30-minute rain delay. So they didn't restart. They're supposed to start the race at 3.30 or uh, 2.30, actually. didn't start until quarter after 3. They didn't get it restarted till just after 9. And at 12, uh, 12 in the morning on Monday, uh, Michael McDowell has declared the winner. A little bit of controversy, and I'm one of those few. And, I, again, I'm not taking anything away from Michael McDowell who really is one of those smaller race team guys who has over 350 NASCAR starts without a win. And he wins the Daytona 500, which is the biggest stock car race in the business and in the sport. So if you're going to win one and win your first one, that's the one to win. However, however, as often happens in the draft on these tracks, especially at Daytona and places like Talladega, McDowell made a move, got into the back of Brad Keselowski. He in turn got into Joey Logano, who was leading that pushed them off into the wall. There was a big fiery crash, and McDowell just said, doop to do going to go through the gap here in the Red Sea and grab this thing and uh, grabbed his first win. A little bit of controversy, not taking anything away from him, because dag nabbit, when you try that many times to win a race in NASCAR and you finally win one, and it's Daytona, taking nothing away from it. But, boy, there's a – you know what? In my mind, whether he did it – it was an accident, obviously. He didn't do it intentionally, but – Theory always has been, and I keep repeating this ad nauseum to the annoyance of many, is that if you're faster than me, get around me and pass me. Don't run into me. 
And one of those deals where the draft kind of fooled him maybe, and he got in too fast, too hot with Keselowski, and the rebound got up into Logano, whatever. But there is a little bit of uh, controversy with a little asterisk beside that win. But, hey, away you go. Now all we need to do is see if McDowell can carry this momentum in for the rest of the season. Many say he won't. We don't know. But forever you'll be known as a winner of the Daytona 500, which is a very prestigious club. Uh, the big one, as you spoke about E.T., uh, unfortunately involved uh, Ryan Newman, who, you know, we watched mm. him last year and we thought, boy, oh boy, this guy, like it looked like he was seriously hurt. And then like miraculously a day later, walking out of the hospital with his daughters in his hands. Um, it, it was too bad in my mind. It was just too bad to see him get caught up in that one. But uh, yeah. what a road back for Ryan Newman. Well, absolutely. And for the second year in a row, we had a, a cataclysmic accident at the last lap of the Daytona. 500 and, and Ryan last year got, you know, he was up in the air and was sliding along on the side and got clobbered in the roof, which was never a good thing. But as you say, he got taken to hospital and pretty scary. And he walked out, as you say, with his daughters in, in, uh, in hand a few, uh, a few days later, which was an amazing thing. And because of that, and going back even to the loss of Dale Earnhardt in 2000 at the Daytona 500, they've done a lot to really beef up these cars. As a matter of fact, if you, I don't know if you guys ever noticed, but when they ever go to that in-car shot where they're showing the driver, if you take the body off that car from around where they're sitting, it looks like the cockpit of an Indy car. They got a Hans device on their helmet. They've got that whole enclosure around them in the cockpit, right? And they're they're totally enclosed there. They move the driver more towards the center of the car, more crushable areas in there to, to protect him. And that's all because of wrecks that we have had at the Daytona 500. Sometimes the safety measures in our sport are reactionary, uh, reactive as opposed to being proactive. But in this case, you know, the, a lot of the, all the guys walked away from that big crash at Daytona. The only thing I'm curious about is Keslowski's fuel cell came dislodged, and that's what caused the fire. Now, that cell back there is supposed to be encased in steel, and it's supposed to prevent gasoline from leaking, which is exactly what happened in that crash. And the whole cell got ripped apart from the back end of that of that of that car, the number two. So I think NASCAR's got a little more work to do in making sure those cells don't rip apart because that ain't supposed to happen, girls. So, you know, away we go with uh, some more improvements there. But, yeah, entertaining. And now we go back to Daytona for this Sunday. They're going to do the road course. So we'll see what happens. But, yeah, it, it took a long time to get that darn thing finished. But it was an entertaining 500 for sure. Uh, E.T., a little bit uh, going back a little bit. NASCAR was one of the first sports uh, to get going again after the whole COVID pandemic struck. Yeah. Um, are they hitting the ground running this season? Uh, what was the, re the reaction or, I guess, the viewership for the uh, Daytona 500? Was it was it up to expectations? Uh, I don't know about the viewership. I don't think they've released the numbers, but I can tell you this is, yeah, you, you recognize the fact that of all the sports out there, even the stick and balls, the, the auto racing guys were the first to, no, not open the tracks to spectators, even though that did happen. They weeded them in as the season went on. And for this Daytona 500 we just had, there were about 20,000 in the pews uh, at Daytona. What the sport did, they said, we've got to get our races off the ground for our sponsors to at least get some kind of a return on investment. Otherwise, we're in big financial trouble. They've taken a tremendous financial hit. But what they did was they did it responsibly. I wasn't a fan of them doing it. I thought it was too dangerous. But everybody wore a mask. Everybody stayed distance. You didn't have anybody in the grandstands. Everybody stayed uh, apart. And we, even if you include... F1 and IndyCar and all the other series we follow, there was only a small handful of positive COVID tests. And thank goodness, touch wood, nobody came down with COVID-19. So they went about it in a very responsible way. And we're pretty lucky that way. And champions were declared in those three major series as well. So I think when they were going to open it up, 
Mm, I wondered about it, but they did it responsibly. They did it well. Nobody got sick because of it. And that's the main thing. And they hit the ground running to use your, uh, your vernacular uh, with about 20,000 fans in the seats at Daytona. And you'll see more fans in there. They weeded them in gradually last year, but they started with fans in the stands. And as long as no one comes down with this thing, they're going to continue on that track. Chatting with Eric Thomas, our buddy from Raceline Radio, about the Daytona 500. ET, I want to ask you a broader question just about the sport as a whole, uh, NASCAR particularly, obviously. Uh, we know that they're not afraid to tinker with rules. They've tinkered with the playoff format over the years. They've tinkered with the cars, like you mentioned earlier. We see it in other series. F1 is tinkering with their rules constantly, as an example. What sort of things are you hearing about NASCAR in terms of them potentially maybe any rule changes, things that they're going to do to the cars in the next couple of years or is there an appetite for mass changes in terms of how nascar operates as a sport i think they're going to make small little adjustments there aren't any large there may be there's not coming to mind immediately which makes me think but there probably isn't anything huge coming up on the horizon i think the one thing that they did it was smart and if you notice this is that the, the the ford guys went to the mustang which is considered a muscle car right a high performance street car Chevrolet got rid of the Monte Carlo and a bunch of other things. There's to do the Lumen at one time, for God's sake. And they're doing the Camaro. The only thing that's out there is the Toyotas. There's about, what, 17 or 18 Fords and 17 or 18 Chevys and about seven Toyota Camrys, which is not a high-performance model. So the one thing that they did that I thought was good for image, and it's nothing to do really with safety, is the fact that, you know, our, our you know, these are supposed to be stock cars. And goodness gracious, they're not stock Mustangs. They're not stock Camaros. And they're not stock Camrys. The only thing that looks like one is the is the the grill opening at the front and the and the tail light decals. So, on the so back ET, end. why do they call them that if they don't? Because I agree with you. There's I nothing was, that resembles I that. An, I was answering another question, which you brought up as another debate. We could do a whole damn show on it. Just hang on. Okay, a okay, fine. <laughs> because it's it's a pet peeve of mine, and I'm glad you brought it up, Clarky. But the idea is that you know if you're going to race cars that are supposed to, you know, trigger sales and, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, all that baloney that everyone hangs on to. And some of it's true and some of it isn't, is the fact that they went with the high performance brands. In terms of the engines, you know, they're, they're 350 up to 355 small blocks. There's no big changes coming that way. They have made some aero changes on those things, taken away some of the downforce on the back, made the rear spoiler a bit smaller, but they're constantly tinkering with that. But in terms of what I liked is the fact that at least Ford and Chevy have gone high performance. I don't know what Toyota's going to do with the Camry. They don't really have a high performance. Well, they, they do, but you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But stock cars, yeah. I mean, back in the days when they were called stock cars, you went down to the dealership, you bought one, you knocked out the windows, you welded up the doors, painted a number on the side, and away you went. It's gotten a long way from that. These are now made from chrome molly tubing, specially made, specially skinned in the shops to somewhat resemble the car that you buy on the street. And to many, that's one of the reasons why NASCAR has suffered a little bit of an identity crisis because of that. But they're not about to change that anytime soon. The one good thing, and you've triggered it in my mind for this year, and I know it's a long run on answer, and I know you hate me for that, is the fact that this year they're going to go back to their roots and they're going to do a cup race and a truck race and an Xfinity race on dirt at Bristol. NASCAR started mm. on the clay, on, on fields and cornfields and farm fields in the American South and, and, and moonshining uh, liquor away from the revenuers down in the American South, and they're going to go back to their roots on dirt, and that is going to be an amazing thing to watch. So that is what NASCAR is looking at, really, for this season coming up. There's a lot of good things to look at.
ET, we continue to see the changing of the guard. And I just want to talk a little bit about the broadcast that we saw on Sunday. Um, yeah. Now we have, like, Jeff Gordon, I think, is doing a good job. Dale yeah. Earnhardt, I think, has stepped into TV and done a tremendous job. Jimmy. And now we have my favorite driver from the past few years, Clint Boyer, in there. <laughs> um, and I remember Clint Boyer and Jeff Gordon having some battles on the track sure. and having some sure. battles in the pits and some punches being thrown. Now they're sitting side by side in the booth. What do you think of those guys up there? What, why do you think they put them side by side in the booth? It's awesome. <laughs> well, it is because they have a history, but mainly because of Clint's sense of uh, humor. Yeah. He's a, he's a guy, if you've ever seen him interviewed, and we've interviewed him a few times, he's a very droll individual with a very, <laughs> with a very crazy sense of humor. And the fact of the matter is he's a, he's a good driver and a, a live wire, and he's a, a bit of a short fuse, but that's good. He's not going to BS you up there. He's going to tell you exactly what, what, uh, what he is seeing and what he thinks. And that's good. And, and I, you know, with the with with Mike Joy up there and uh, and those two guys, you've got all the mechanics to analyze. And then you got Mike sort of calling the laps and doing what they need to do. I think it's a really neat deal. I mean, the one thing that 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 Mike has learned and the others have learned that when you've got guys of high profile like Jeff Gordon and Clint Boyer, you know, you don't need to be the guy with the most verbiage on the clock at the end of the day. You call the rudiments, you call the ins and outs to commercials, you let them know what's going on identify cars, identify situations, let those other two dudes do a majority of the work because that's what they're there for. And th I think that that's one of the things you, you notice with a, with a veteran play-by-play -play guy like Mike Joy is the fact that he understands that and, and he doesn't get in the way. He lets those guys do their job and it's entertaining. It's, it's the entertainment business. Damn it, we just happen to race cars to do it, to entertain people. And if you're going to have someone describe it, those guys are doing a good job. And, and how do they divide it this year with Fox and, and NBC? Do you know how they're... It's half and half. It's okay. half and half. Fox takes the front part, and then NBC takes the rest of the season at the at the halfway mark. Got it. That's basically how they do it. Uh, Et, do you think NASCAR has an advantage over some of the other racing circuits uh, because they're domestically based in the U.S. compared to international travel? When you look at F1 or even yeah. Indy, wait, are you talking with the COVID thing situation or just in general? I think he. I think he means in general. Yes. Oh, in general, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this debate comes up in, in IndyCar that IndyCar needs more American drivers and they have them and IndyCar for the most part, other than their one race in, in, uh, in Canada. Now, uh, they try to get more international racing in Germany at Lausitz ring and racing in Japan and a few other places. They're an American based series too. And of course they're rooted around the Indianapolis 500, which despite what you may think about the Daytona 500 is still the biggest automobile race that there is in the business. So the fact that they're American based is a help with numbers. Sure it does. But F1 doesn't do that badly, generally, knowing that they're all international because they have a race in the USA. They have a race in Texas, and there's been talk about doing a race in New York City, and I think there's a Lynx uh, in your proximity there. There we are. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the international thing is important, but NASCAR does have it because it was born there. And IndyCar racing, Champ Car racing was born in the, in the USA and in North America as well. There are those out there that I think are very close-minded to say, if it ain't if it ain't American, I ain't gonna watch it. I don't watch it because they're not, you know, they're you know they're they ain't from my, where I live. You know, I don't even know what language those guys speak half the time. Damn it. So anyway, so you know, it, it doesn't bother me. Racing is racing, and the international thing is cool. You know, you've got in, in the, on the IndyCar side, you just had we we've got him on, on Raceline Radio here, Romain Grosjean, who ran for Haas in F1. He's coming over to do IndyCars this year with Dale Coyne which is going to be cool, just the streets and roads, and there may, you may do Gateway and eventually the Indy 500. And, of course, you've got you know all kinds of guys that are showing interest in 
in IndyCar. So those lines between, maybe, maybe the answer is this, maybe I've rambled too much, of course I have, is the fact that, that, that those lines between NASCAR and IndyCar and Formula One are not so vivid anymore. And the line between IndyCar and Formula One has become a lot less uh, vivid and has become a lot more uh, homogenized in terms of the crossover between their guys, F1 guys and IndyCar guys, not so much the, the NASCAR thing, but you've got, you know, some guys that, that have done that. Almondinger has, has done this and uh, Antonio Ferrucci, who did IndyCar last year, he's going to do some NASCAR stuff. So those lines are starting to fade like the, these big heavy borders between the series. And I think that's a good thing for the sport in general. Hey, what's happening with the uh, track down your way? Is that is, is anything mm -hmm. happening there? Not a whole lot, Clarky. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, I've, uh, I'm still in touch with them. And until they tell me that the project is dead, the project is alive. They bought land. Uh, they went. They got a, an extension on on their sunset clause. They have until September of this year to actually start something on the land again. Otherwise, the zoning they were they were able to change to build this track. Uh, you know, tentatively. Uh, if they don't have that thing going again by September, they lose that zoning and it reverts back and they start all over again. Uh, I, 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 you know, not privy to all of it, but they, they had to rearrange their financing. Uh, not to say that there isn't money there. There is, it just, it needs to come from just a few different holes. And I'm not trying to, 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 uh, to hold anything back here. They need to rechannel and reorganize their financing. And that's taking longer than they thought it would. And that's where, Pretty much that sits right now. Once they get it done, they're going to build an oval the size of Richmond and a road course as well. And that'll be a good thing for racing in this country. It'll be yeah. down in the Fort Erie Buffalo area, which would be ideal. And I mean, this thing has taken, you know, longer than 10 years to bring to fruition and it still isn't to fruition yet. But uh, we keep an eye on it for everybody. And if anything happens, we'll let you know. ET, uh, I just want to ask you one last thing. Of course, uh, the Daytona 500, it was a fun race to watch, but uh, of course it was the 20-year anniversary, un unbelievably so, of, of NASCAR losing Dale Earnhardt in arguably the darkest day in motorsports history. I, I, I was a young kid then. I remember it very vividly. It's one of only maybe two times I ever saw my dad cry in front of me. Mm -hmm. it, it was terrible. He was the hugest Dale Earnhardt fan I yep. ever met. What do you remember about that day and, and are, are the effects of that crash and, and that moment still reverberating in motorsport today? Oh, yeah. yeah, well, you know, he was the biggest personality in NASCAR at the time, uh, the intimidator. And, you know, he was easily the most popular driver in NASCAR. And the freaky thing that I was just discussing this with Greg McPherson from Inside Track Motorsport News just, just this afternoon is the fact the freaky thing about that was that when you looked at that wreck, when you saw, you know, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. went on, you know, to finish, uh, you know, second. Michael Waltrip won the race, and his brother Daryl was Mikey calling the race in the booth, which made it all surreal. Then you saw Earnhardt's car just sort of not even, not even hard, just go up into the wall just a little bit, and then the uh, and then the announcement that uh, they had lost Dale Earnhardt. And there's been some talk on the anniversary about this, and and it's commonly known. You know, and some people, wow, it, it's sensitive to say this, but it's the fact of the matter is, is this, is that they've taken great safety strides after we lost Dale Earnhardt. Dale himself did not like to have his belts done up tight. He did not like to have the belts tight, so he didn't mount them the right way. And he, and, and he had an open face helmet and what have you. And Bill Simpson, the guy with the safety equipment said, Dale, you're mounting your belts wrong. And he said, oh, that's for that word you use for a small cat okay i'm not going to use the word here you know but you know what 
if he had had his belts tight, he probably, and, and, and some kind of head and neck support, that's where the Hans device came in, his head snapped forward just enough at the wrong angle and that little gentle nose into the wall that uh, had him suffer what was known as a basal skull fracture where the spine severs from the bottom of your brain on the back of your skull just with your head snapping forward like that. That's what the Hans device and that enclosure that we just talked about earlier around the driver's head and helmet stops that violent movement of your head that cost Dale Earnhardt his life. And it was it's just a terrible thing to have that happen. I mean, he was a friend of, of everybody's, you know, Ron Fellows, who were very close to. He he drove with Ron in, in the Corvette and sports car racing. They were very close. To lose a guy of that stature in the sport, you know, everybody says, well, he died doing what he loved. Well, yeah, no doubt. However, yeah, it's a day we'll never forget. It was it was one of the darkest days in our sport. But because of that, no doubt a few other lives, such as Mr. Newman and Mr. Logano and Mr. Keselowski, are probably walking around today and maybe, maybe, and we don't think anything worse, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have had those safety things that were put in place in those cars after we lost Dale Earnhardt. Absolutely. A great legacy left behind, of course, and brighter days ahead for NASCAR as a result of that, certainly. Eric Thomas of Raceline Radio, buddy, we really appreciate this. It's great to see you. I'm glad you're safe and well. Congrats on a 29th season of the show. Where can everybody listen to the show? Well, we're on, uh, we're, if you go to our, our Facebook page, we've got a list of all the affiliates there, uh, including Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto in the immediate area. We're on in, in Vancouver, in Edmonton and Calgary, uh, and uh, right through the Niagara Peninsula in Ottawa, Montreal, and Halifax as well, and some points in between Hamilton and Niagara, to name some. Uh, and uh, just check on the affiliate list. And most of those affiliates podcast the show too, guys, so they can pick it up basically anytime they want. This is always a lot of fun with you guys. Good seeing everybody. You guys take care and uh, hope you're all still safe and uh, tune in. And anytime you want me to jump on, we'll do her. Absolutely, buddy. We appreciate it. No excuse not to listen to Eric Thomas on Raceline Radio. You can find it all over the place. We will take a quick break on this show where you can also find us all over the place on all the best podcast apps. We will be right back and chat with Rob Longley about the Blue Jays. Pitchers and catchers have reported. What's the staff going to look like going forward? And are the Blue Jays in possession of one of the best hitting lineups in all of baseball? We'll talk about that with Rob Longley next here on MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to MWO Sports. Ryan Drury still alongside Steve Saverin and Chris Clark. We thank our buddy Eric Thomas from Raceline Radio for joining us to talk NASCAR. Now our focus shifts to the baseball diamond with the Toronto Suns. Rob Longley, who covers the Blue Jays. Rob, how are you? Good, Ryan. How are you? Hard to believe it's finally here. It doesn't really feel like baseball season yet, but it's uh, always a sure sign that springs around the corner. Yeah, we're very excited. Pitchers and catchers reporting, obviously, yesterday. Everybody's very excited in anticipation of what should be a very exciting season for the Toronto Blue Jays. Last year certainly was. I mean, they make the playoffs in the expanded format. Now heading into this year, as pitchers and catchers report, let's start there. Obviously, lots of fanfare about adding George Springer and Marcus Semien. They add guys like Kirby Yates into the bullpen. But the starting rotation is still under scrutiny in Toronto. We know what Hyunjin Ryu will bring. But beyond that, we're looking at a bit of a patchwork here that they still haven't really addressed. And fans have been very critical of that. What is your opinion on what the future of this rotation could look like this year and going forward in the immediate future? 
Yeah, that's that's very much the 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 big outstanding issue with this this team. Obviously, uh, I cut the Jays a little bit of slack on on not being able to address it fully in the offseason because the options just weren't there. There weren't that many good free agents on the market beyond Trevor Bauer and 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 the option the other options that they looked at just not nothing really materialized. But yeah, it's a big question mark going into training camp. And when you consider that you've spent eighty million dollars on Ryu and now one hundred and fifty million dollars on. George Springer. Um, it matters not if you don't have a rotation. It matters not if you can't get the first 15 of those 27 outs each night. So I think we're going to see over the course of spring training over the next month or so how that is going to unfold. I mean, you obviously have Ryu as your workhorse ace. And uh, by all accounts, he's had a good offseason. He threw 50 pitches today in a bullpen, which for this time in in, in the winter is is pretty solid. So I would anticipate that he would be be back in form. But beyond that, it's what do you do? You've got Probably, uh, it, I'm probably going to use this in my newspaper column later in the week. It reminds me of an old line that Ron Wilson once said when he coached the Toronto Maple Leafs. He said, one day he said, I, I called for my third line to go out and six guys, eight guys dropped, jumped over the boards. <laughs> so who's going to be your fourth and your fifth starter for the Blue Jays? That's the thing. They got five or six guys, maybe even seven, battling for those three, four, and five spots in the rotation. Um, competition is a good thing that way. Uh, but you know, you still have to have, make sure that you have guys that can get the job done on a nightly basis. I mean, I mean, the hopes for fans anyway would be that Nate Pearson would slide into that number two spot, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did. However, he's going to be on a, on somewhat of a, uh, a an innings limit this year. I mean, the guy hasn't pitched more than 120 innings in a year, and at any point in his pro career, he's had some arm issues. So they're going to hope that he can be a number two guy, but they're good. You know, he, he will miss a start from time to time just to sort of protect that arm and continue his development. So yeah, over the next five or six weeks, we're going to really see who emerges from these depth guys as legit starters and, and how that rotation shapes up. So if they don't have that uh, answer in the uh, organization, Rob, do they look at making a trade and what are some of the chips maybe they have to, to find another arm? Yeah, I think that's the way they go, Clark. And, they, and they, they've actually somewhat acknowledged it. Um, you know, yes, would they rather have the uh, rotation stronger going into the season? Of course. But I think there's a sense there that they're going to score a lot of runs, you know, and if they can just sort of be around 500 or a few games above 500 as the trade deadline emerges, so that now you're in contention in the American League East, now you make a move at the trade deadline and try to get a legitimate starter. Look, look at all the sellers out there. And the sellers might be aggressive this year without any revenue out there. So that's, I think, where they're going to try to improve first. And then if, if not, they'll go to they'll look to add next offseason through free agency. But yeah, they do have assets. They do have ma- assets to move. They have some depth, both in terms of uh, players on the roster right now and in their, in their prospects. So um, I think it's sort of the first time under the re- regime, the current regime, that they're probably willing to part with some of those prospects if it means bringing in a bona fide starter that could really solidify uh, a, this, this team's chances going down the stretch. So I think that's sort of their plan right now. It's not not the ideal way to go, but you can't really do it all in one offseason. And I think, uh, you know, I think they're looking to, to first the trade deadline and then and then next year's free agency period. With the Gissing game of the pitching staff, um, how does that affect the uh, other part of the battery and the catchers? Because uh, you, you could catch, you know, three, four different pitchers uh, w- within a game, but now your starting rotation is going to be up in the air. And the catching position has been underwhelming from an offensive standpoint. Uh, what does it look like this season? 
Yeah, that's going to be an interesting battle as well, because um, you're right, Danny Jansen, I think he's done a decent job sort of managing the pitchers, and I think he really is a legitimate big league catcher of the future, but he's he's struggled mightily at the plate. He sort of woke up a little bit in September last year and and, and showed uh, some of that power that he has. He's, he's shown he can hit previously in his career, but he's got to be much more consistent than he's been. Um, the guy that fans would love to see is Alejandro Kirk. I mean, remember when he got called up in August and September and all he did was hit the cover off the ball. And his issue, one of his issues was he was a little uh, on the heavy side. He's, he's had a good offseason and, and has reported to camp uh, in, in better shape, and he can still hit the baseball. But the issue with him is uh, he speaks Spanish. His English is, is fairly weak. And, you know, so much of the modern-day catcher's job is managing the guy on the mound um, in terms of being a strong line of communication, calling the game. And, that, and Kirk isn't there yet. So I think you're going to have Kirk and Jansen and, and you know, Reese McGuire is sort of the third guy battling for two spots. Um, but they're going to need some more consistency, some more offense from, from that position. And uh, you'll get it from Kirk, but I don't think you can put him behind the dish every night because he just doesn't manage the, the pitchers as well as he will someday when he gets a, a little more experience under his belt. Uh, you mentioned uh, a little heavy. Um, uh, that uh, Ryan knows where I'm going with this. Uh, update me on our friend Vladdy. Has he trimmed down at all, Rob? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he yeah? was okay at his zenith last year. He was like he was tipping him at 285, which yeah, you, you know, can't. <laughs> you can't even play first base. Never mind third base. Really, at that at that weight, and he he struggled at first too. Like people thought, you know, he was obviously struggled a lot at third, but he did he was not that adept over at first base either. So uh, for whatever reason, the team has sort of promised him a shot at third base. I think it was more to motivate him than anything else, and they didn't want to shut a door on him. Um, and it came up today in our, in our first uh, sort of Zoom mm-hmm. press conference with Charlie Montoyo. You know, what about Vladdy? What's he going to do? And he and, and the manager basically said, yeah, we're going to give him a shot at third. He's going to play some third base in spring training, and he's going to play some first base in spring training. But I think if management is being honest and forthright at this point, they do not see him as a third baseman. They're, they're, they don't want to discourage the kid because he finally seems to have gotten his act together physically. And, you know, he believes that he can play third base. He's, he's got a great arm. You know, he's got the arm to play third base. And his hand isn't that bad. I mean, his feet, his footwork isn't that bad either. But it's just, you know, he just made too many mistakes. And you could allow that in his rookie season, and you could allow that a little bit last year. But if you're putting a field on the diamond, a team on the diamond every night that you think is going to be a contender, you can't afford to have those defensive miscues. Uh, so the the the, uh, the patience, the hook will be slim, uh, short on him this year. So who ends up at third? I heard Guriel might get some time at third as well. Is this a matter of not having uh, a lot of depth at different positions and a lot of uh, variations you can use, but no real true third baseman on the roster? Is that is that? Yeah, right? that's pretty much it. I mean, they spin it as as liking the liking to have liking the versatility of many players and liking to have the options, which I suppose is a good thing. But I mean, I'm with you. You need a they call it the hot corner for a reason. You need a reliable guy over there, and and you need a guy you can you can throw out there. I mean, 130, 140 nights a a, a year. Um, so I would think that the incumbent over there now would be Kevin Biggio, and you know he's a decent fielder. I don't see him as being a a, a Gold Glover over at third base. And yeah, uh, today um, Charlie Montoyo dropped uh, Lourdes Gurriel on us. I mean, we all thought two years ago when he 
repeatedly booted the ball at shortstop that he'd never see the infield again in his career. And, you know, he was a serviceable left fielder out there, which is great because then you could put his, his, uh, his bat in the lineup. But Montoyo said today that during the winter, um, Guriel has taken plenty of ground balls, both at third base and first base, which leads me to wonder if they're going to have him sort of do spot duty in there, or if they haven't decided what they're going to do at third base, if it's, if Guriel is better over there than Biggio, and if Vladdy is the first baseman, you know, maybe you give Guriel a chance back in the infield. But, I mean, he had the baseball version of the yips there uh, two seasons ago, and I, I, I'd i be pretty hesitant seeing him uh, back in a major league infield. Rob, I'm curious uh, a little bit about the infield as well, because, I mean, you look at the outfield, and Springer just completely changes the dynamic there. He's the guy you want in center all the time. Right. It's going to drastically improve some of the defensive issues we saw there last year. Teoscar Hernandez, Montoyo said, will play left and right. You've got Grichik there to platoon as well, Guriel. On the infield, I mean, MLB Network just named Kevin Biggio the fifth best second baseman in baseball <laughs> on their yeah. top 10 list. I mean... You know, and now you bring Semyon in who doesn't want to play at third and is, yeah. you know, by trade a shortstop. They want to give Bichette the, every opportunity to excel at shortstop. So you basically almost are forced, you know, in a way to play Biggio at third when he just got named the number five second baseman in baseball. It's a weird conundrum to have for this team. Yeah, that really speaks to the oddity of what's what's going on. And so does getting Semyon, who is like a really good shortstop with the Oakland athletics, but they, because it's likely that he's only going to be here for a year, they signed him to a one year, $18 million deal, which smells of the guy wants to get a multi-year deal once he proves he can hit again. So they're not going to uh, piss off uh, Bichette and, and let Semyon move right into shortstop. Uh, yet Bichette is probably a better second baseman than he is a shortstop and Semyon's a better shortstop than he is a second baseman, but that's just the configuration that they're going to have. Now you would think that as a veteran, um, and a proven good defender on on good teams in Oakland that Semyon should be able to make the uh, transition at, to, at second base. But, um, you know, Charlie Montoyo told us today that he's going to get a lot of playing time. They're going to want to see him out there a lot because he's got to get used to that new new position. When you've played on the other side of second base as your, as your prime position in the major leagues, it's going to be a bit of an adjustment. I don't care who you are. Um, but yeah, so that's, it's a bit of an oddity and, you know, in, in a perfect world, you'd have Biggio at, at second base, but they don't feel that they can move Semyon over to third, um, which I guess leads us back to the original point. I don't think they have any idea of what they're going to do at third base and at third baseman by committee is not a formula to meet this team's, one of this team's biggest priorities of the off season, And that's to improve defensively. Um, you know, that might change over the course of, of, of spring training, but this team's got to get a lot better at the, on that side of the game. And, and there seems to be a little bit of uncertainty going into the, into this season at this point anyway. Well, that's an interesting uh, statement because this whole conversation started with the pitching staff. And if you're a pitcher kind of being spot duty in for starting roles, the last thing you want to be worried about is the consistency of your defense and your infield. Yeah, and it's it's funny you mention that because, um, as you guys know, I was in Buffalo for for all the home games last year, and I found myself um, like Ryu's a great teammate. They all love him, uh, but he's a pro, and you know the, the type of pitcher that he is, he's a, he, he'll get a lot of ground ball outs. And there were a few nights there when I mean you could almost audibly feel him slump on the mound when somebody booted a ball. 
Um, and that's demoralizing, you know, that's demoralizing for, for any kind of, any pitcher, any starter. Um, and, you know, Ryu, the, 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 with the language barrier, he was, and, and the type of teammate he, he is, he was never going to say anything, but you could tell that there were nights where it was frustrating to see that kind of defensive play behind him. Um, you know, the, the, uh, again, that's why they made, made improving defensively a priority. Um, they, they said a run prevention. So, uh, in the offseason, Ross Atkins, the GM, that's the way he put it. And I think that's so you can share the blame a little bit with, with the pitching staff, but, but really they have to be so much better um, defensively in, in those positions in the infield, even, even Bichette, you know, like I think that he has a future as a shortstop, but he was never, he didn't look too comfortable after he came back from that injury. And I think it was in the second playoff game against the Rays that he made a couple of errors. Now the game was long over by that point, but you know, it's he's he still has to prove to me that he's he's a top flight shortstop before you can feel uh, comfortable with him at that position. Hey, Rob, you mentioned you were in Buffalo last year. The Jays have announced their first couple of series will start in Dunedin this year, so you're getting your wishy. I presume you get to go to Florida. Um, is that is that the plan? And what do you see playing out the rest of the season with this team? Yeah, we're still uh, still up in the air as to whether I'm going to go down there. I guess uh, we have to see with our employers about traveling to the states and and, okay. and the logistics of all that, especially coming back. But um, yeah, the team announced today, obviously, that the first two home stands will be played in Dunedin, and uh, I think it'll be at least another one on top of that. That takes us to May second. Um, my guess is that they'll add at least one more, which would take you to sort of late May. And that's when it becomes decision time. If the border is still closed, obviously they they could either stay in Dunedin or look look to another alternative. But more and more, it looks like probably by the end of June or sooner, if Toronto isn't available, they'll go back to Buffalo. And the reason for that is is uh, pretty clear to anybody who's spent time in the sort of the Tampa area in in June or July or August. Um, you know, I can remember a number. I've, I've I've gone to the Trop a number of times to cover Jay's series, and every night you can hear the thunder outside. I mean, there's a there is a thunderstorm that time of year almost every night in the evening time because of the humidity, and and the other part of it is the oppressive heat. I mean, it's just too warm, too hot for these guys to play a a, a, a regular series of games. There's a reason there's a roof on the on the Florida Stadium uh, where the Marlins play, and obviously there's a reason why there's a roof on the crappy stadium where the Rays plays play the trot. But, um, you know, I don't think Major League Baseball would like to go through that. I don't think they want to have all these rain delays. And I, and I don't think the Blue Jays want to go through that. So if the border, if there's no sign of the border being cleared to be open, then they're going to come back to Buffalo. And uh, the, the Buffalo Bisons, the AAA team, would move to a yet-to-be-named other location, probably somewhere else in New York State. And, and the Blue Jays would move in and and do what they did last season. And I think still clinging to that hope that, you know, if the border does open eventually, that maybe they would be in Toronto for a, a playoff push, whether it be late August or September and, and and through the excitement of the postseason, if they were able to qualify again. So they seem to be pleased um, that there was at least some certainty that they're going to start the season in one place. And a lot of these guys actually have homes down in the Dunedin area. So they're definitely going to be more settled than they were last year um, playing in Buffalo, but there's still a lot of uncertainty to go with it. Like, do you really want to move twice in one season? Do you want to move up to Buffalo and then over to Toronto? Do you really want to go back to Buffalo for another, 
you know, a couple of months and living in a hotel. They did well there. They had a good record. They had a good home field advantage, but it's less than ideal. The team really wants to get back to t- Toronto, even if there's no fans in the stadium. But I mean, we've all seen it in our country, you know, with the way the vaccine rollout has gone and uh, the way the border is no sign of, of op- reopening. Um, I would think, you know, Canada Day would be wildly optimistic and uh, August 1st would probably still be a long shot. Absolutely. We're joined by Toronto Sun Blue Jays beat reporter Rob Longley. Rob, I want to ask you to just put your GM hat on for a second and maybe try and come up with some sort of trade or addition that the Jays could potentially make. Obviously, we'll we'll see how things go. I I doubt we're going to see a big move right now in terms of adding to the pitching staff, but maybe around the trade deadline and certainly next offseason. Look around the league. Is there a guy or two that you would target? The Jays have the number three overall farm system. They've got chips to move. I mean, you look at the pitching depth they have in terms of young pitchers, Simeon Woods, Richardson, guys like Alec Manoa that they could include potentially to bring a big arm in. I look around. I look at a guy maybe like Luis Castillo. Will the Reds want to hold on to him? Will they part ways with him and go full-scale rebuild, which I think they will? He's a guy that jumps out at me. Is he someone that jumps out at you or are there some other guys around the league that you look at and say, hey, that would be a great target for the Jays to go after? Yeah, it's Castillo is, is one name that, that you know, it's not the first time I've heard his name uh, thrown out there. And I think he would be the logical type uh, candidate for the Jays to, to go after. But I really think it, it, it's going to depend on, A, are they are the Jays themselves in, in contention uh, come July as we approach the July 31st tra- trade deadline? And then it's going to be what teams aren't. Um, you know, we've certainly seen it historically at trade deadlines that teams are, are that are well out of it or aren't shy about uh, about moving arms, about moving moving talent. But I think especially over the last two or three years, we've we've seen there's so many teams that are so far out of it that I, that I think there's going to be plenty of options for them, and uh, they'll be as they'll be as as aggressive shopping around the trade deadline as they were aggressively shopping during the free agency period this year. But I think they'll focus their their ambitions that way on on teams that are out of it and 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 starting pitching types that that fit what they have. I mean obviously they wouldn't mind getting another left-handed starter. Um and I, I don't I don't even think term will matter matter for them. I think they would go for a a guy that would just be um you know deadline a deadline type pickup just to to help get them over the hump. Um you get a little frustrated covering this team, and as a as a fan of this team, I would think about just having all these sort of fringe guys. You know, uh, we sort of had some optimism a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when Estrada was could still pitch, and when Aaron Sanchez and and uh, Marcus Stroman were both seen as strong, you know, almost ace type up and coming guys. But I mean, now you've got you know you've got Ryu and everybody else, uh, and you can't consider yourself a legitimate. Uh, playoff contender, especially in the American League East, when that's the type of rotation that you have. Rob, I always love reading your stuff, and you've been doing this for, well, forever. Um, do you still enjoy doing it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely do. The business, yeah. as, you, as you well know, Clark, has changed a lot over the years. Um, I covered the Leafs for almost a decade, I guess, and then we had a couple of our baseball guys, baseball writers, retire. And the boss asked me if I would take one for the team and cover it for a year. He says, I'll give you a one-year option, your option. And uh, I liked it. Baseball was, it was, a, nice, was a nice change, a change of uh, pace, a different kind of beat. 
And this will, I guess this will be my going into my fifth year on it now. Um, but last year wasn't a lot of, last year was okay. Um, but it's, it's just not the same when you, when you can't have one-on-one contact with the athletes, that's where you do, mm-hmm. that's where you make your hay in this business that, you know, you form relationships, you get to know players, uh, guys who can sort of tell you what's going on without being quoted on it. Not like, not necessarily dirt either, but just so you have a, a real feel for the day-to-day, uh, feel of a, of a team. Um, so we're all sort of feeling the challenges of the zoom world, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there really is a thing, a thing, a, such a thing as Zoom fatigue. I think uh, we were—I was on three or four of them already today, <laughs> oh, and, and they're boy. fine and they're functional. But you don't get that—you can't a- ask the same kind of questions or same kind of follow-ups as you would if you were sitting across from each other in in, yeah. in, a, in a clubhouse or, you know, in the in the batting cage. And and, and I think you know, ultimately, um, readers, viewers, listeners, fans are at a disservice because of that you don't you don't i mean it's easy for people to say oh yeah that's just a media guy complaining and it is it makes my job more difficult but i think the fans the fans suffer too because they don't get the same sort of insight uh the same sort of feel for a player's personality uh, the same sort of feel for what a team is up to when, when you don't have that kind of contact so yeah i mean i still love my job but it's it's yeah. been very different the last 11 and a half months. And just think when you get back to the Rogers center, you'll be back out there in left field in the football press box. Won't you? Well, interestingly last year during uh, the summer camp there, because there were no fans, um, they had us, they moved us back behind home plate. So we might get an, we might get half a seat. If they do move back to Toronto, we might get a couple of months of not not being in that layout in left field, which is probably where I belong. Who's kidding who? (laughs) Uh, but, uh, yeah, it would be uh, be nice to just get back in a stadium at this point. Guys, yeah. I, I knew Rob from back in the early 90s. He was the TV and radio critic at the Sun. So he was ripping uh, all my work for years at the, at the fans. So. But it was fun. We yeah. formed a, a good relationship out of it. So it was we good. We did over the years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, you should tell him to uh, cover your squash game. <laughs> well, I've watched his videos. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Playing squash, I have no idea. Maybe that's a—I don't know if that's a commentary on me or the commentary on the sports world. But I have actually watched him play, and I haven't that, even. You're the one squash on. Yeah, I'm the one guy. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rob wanted to ask you about. Uh, you mentioned about uh, one-on-one interviews over the last few seasons that you've covered the Blue Jays. Who would you say was your most favorite interview? Uh, probably for me, Justin Smoke. Um, as much he was as he was this big, uh, you know, sort of laid back Southern guy, he he would be a good guy to talk to and just sort of give you, like I said earlier, a feel for what was going on. Um, Bo Bichette has been pretty good. He's been uh, he's been very professional in sort of handling his duties that way. Uh, Kevin Biggio the same. Uh, of the current group, the guy who I find uh, the most approachable and the, the one that's probably most willing to offer insight would be Danny Jansen. Um, he's a pretty smart guy. And I think you ha- I've, I've come to learn that you have to be kind of a smart guy to be a good and effective uh, catcher. He's probably the hardest working guy in that team because he's, he's really trying to study all these guys. And as you guys mentioned, there's so many different styles of arms. And now with openers and closers and bullpen days you've really got to get a feel for for what each of those arms can do and then throw in the language barrier you know of, of dealing with a guy through a translator dealing dealing with a guy like Ryu and last year Japanese pitcher Shun Yamaguchi so Danny Jansen's been a good guy to deal with that way 
And I've also had a little bit of fun um, talking with Vlad Guerrero Jr. in English. He won't he won't go on the record. He doesn't want to do any media interviews uh, in English. But if you sort of get him to the side and say, hey, let's talk English, he's just just for fun. He's pretty good to do it. He's kind of a fun kid to be around. And, um, you, you know, that smile is is legit. It's it's the real him. And I think that's we saw last year where that smile kind of left for a little while. And I think uh, when when he hits stardom, and I think he he will, uh, that joy that he brings to baseball is going to be a lot of fun. It'll be interesting to see if he emerges as sort of the face of this group. A lot of people think it's Bo Bichette right now. I mean, obviously, George Springer is going to make a run for that as well. But I, I still think that, uh, you know, if Vladdy can sort it out and be consistent, he's he could be that star power guy on this team. He certainly could, and Jays fans are hoping that he puts a lot of smiles on their faces this year. You can follow him at Longley Sun Sports. He is Rob Longley of the Toronto Sun. If you want to stay on top of what the Blue Jays are up to, Rob is the guy. Rob, we really appreciate you doing this, brother. Uh, good luck this year. We appreciate all the hard work you're doing, and uh, if you go down to Florida, stay safe. We appreciate this. Thanks, guys. Let's check in uh, before spring training's over. We'll do this again. We certainly will, my friend. Thank you so much. All right, we'll take a quick break here on MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. When we come back, our wagering expert, Chris Abbott. Stay tuned. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to wrap things up here for the week on MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. Ryan Drury alongside Steve Sabern and Chris Clark. Thanks to our buddies Eric Thomas from Raceline Radio and, of course, Rob Longley, Blue Jays beat reporter for the Toronto Sun, for joining us. We are joined now, as always, at the end of the show by our wagering expert from CoolBet, Chris Abbott. Abbott, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, guys. I'm doing good. It's uh, been been one of those weeks. It's been super, super uh, long, but uh, in a good way. Just been just been really busy, which is exactly what we want in the sports betting industry. Okay, we haven't mentioned this all game, and I've been trying to avoid it. But was there any action when the Leafs were up five to one against Ottawa? Like, did you make any money there? Oh, no, not at all. They were 19 to one after the second period in that game. And uh, from what I can tell, we didn't take a single bet uh, really? on the Senators at that price. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, why would you, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, no, nobody, nobody came out like waving the, the ticket that they, that they got the job done. So I guess that's, uh, I guess that's just a story that could have been for a lot of people. Okay. I'm not mentioning it again. Well, well I will tell you, you can't either. I will tell you that, so a lot of people, nobody would have bet the 19 to one, but a lot of people had their parlays busted by the Leafs losing that game. Let me tell you, I'm one of them. Um, I had a Leafs flames parlay that was looking pretty, pretty good. And then they lost. Yeah. And they got an a big point. They got a big left. point. Didn't they? They got a point Yeah, that. Oh, they <laughs> got a real big point, but they lost a big <laughs> other one for sure. It didn't yes. look good on the old leafers for Clarkie. Uh, speaking of the NHL, Abbott, who are some of the teams that you've been on a hot streak with so far in the NHL? Who are some of your favorites to bet on so far? So people can ride the train. Um, you know, they shouldn't, have, they shouldn't be a team that's been good to bet on, but the Chicago Blackhawks have been profitable for people, uh, yes. second in their division right now, that division's not very good. And it's had a lot of canceled games. And I think Chicago's played, you know, like 80% of their games against Detroit and Columbus, but 
um, they're, they, they've been profitable. And actually, the Leafs have too. The Leafs have been a very, very profitable team. Uh, the, the prices are getting to a point now where it's hardly worth betting on them, especially in the games against Ottawa. But um, I'm looking forward to betting on them against Calgary because Calgary is a team that I'm going to be fading for the foreseeable future. And I can completely understand why. Maybe also fade the Washington Capitals, uh, 30th in goals against average. But if you're going to bet on Caps games, take the over. Take the over. Uh, That's a hot tip for me. I want to ask you a little bit about Scotty's Tournament of Hearts. That's firing up this weekend. There's going to be plenty of action on that for sure. Uh, Who are some of the favorites? Who would you lay some money down on, Chris? Yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm actually exhausted here at the end of this week because we've been getting ready for the Scotties all week. Um, yeah, the betting favorite is the defending champion, Kerry Anderson from Manitoba. She's Team Canada. But we haven't seen a ton of betting action on her. We've seen it all on Rachel Holman and Jennifer Jones, you know, the two biggest name curlers in Canada right now. And and for Jennifer Jones especially, she'll go down as one of the best, if not the best ever, uh, to do it here uh, in Canada. So she's getting a lot of betting action, as is Rachel Holman. They're both around three, three and a half to one to win the tournament. Uh, and Jennifer Jones is the favorite to win her pool, um, I think, at about plus 125. But we'll have, uh, you know, um, money line total spread on every single game for the Scotties. And we've already seen some bets coming in. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. There you go, is Je- Chris. Is Jennifer, um, uh, will she be wearing a cool bet? Isn't she a, uh, doesn't she represent your brand? Well, her husband does. Oh, her okay, husband, okay. Brent Lang, is yeah, okay. uh, is uh, one of our partners. And then also Emma Miskew of Rachel mm-hmm. Holman's team. We sponsor her mixed doubles team. But I don't know I don't know how much cool bet branding we'll see at the, the Briars and the Scotties. Uh, we'll be Briar watching. Scotties. Just because, uh, yeah, Curling Canada is usually pretty strict of what they allow in the uniforms. I don't know mm-hmm. if they've done anything this year to open it up a bit for the teams with their sponsors, but I highly doubt it. Um, but there'll certainly be lots of uh, lots of social uh, chatter from our pals at Team Epping, and uh, I know, hey, the girls probably won't talk about it because they're they're not allowed to bet on it or talk about the betting during the tournament. But yeah, for sure, it's it's going to be fun. We've got a lot of people in the curling community and the general sports community in Canada who've already come in and and made accounts just to to bet on these tournaments. And that's always great news. We will keep our eye out for the cool bet bear, as should you, our listeners. Chris, we really appreciate this, buddy. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Talk to you next week. All right. That's the end of the show. We appreciate Eric Thomas from Raceline Radio and Rob Longley of Toronto Sun Sports, uh, Blue Jays beat reporter for joining us. And of course, our wagering expert, Chris Abbott from Cool Bet. You can listen to this show Fridays just after six on CKNX AM 920. Stream it live on CKNX.ca. You can find the podcast on all the best podcast apps, including on the CKNX SoundCloud account and on CKNX.ca. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at MWO underscore sports. You can watch the show on YouTube now, Friday's premiering at 9 p.m., and you can watch it on cable as well with our friends from Whitewind TV, Friday nights at 8, Sunday nights at 9. I'm Ryan Drury. That's Clarky. That's Steve Sabrin. For all of us here at MWO Sports, we appreciate listening to and watching the show, brought to you as always by CoolBet.co. <laughs>